0: Well, good morning, everyone. This is County Supervisor Joe Simitian, and thank you for joining us this morning for our telephone town hall regarding COVID-19, the coronavirus, and the status of the virus, and our uh, efforts to combat the virus here in Santa Clara County. I want to uh, welcome you all. Thank you for taking time out of your day to uh, get this update from uh, not only my office, but a couple of very uh, well-informed panelists who are going to be with us today. I think most of you know uh, that uh, we do these calls from my office as county supervisor. I represent the 5th District, uh, which is the northern and western portions of Santa Clara County, uh, and uh, also some additional territory. I may have served some of you during my tenure in the California State Senate previously, but wherever and whoever, excuse me, we are delighted to have you with us today. And um, we also have a couple of uh, very helpful guests. I'm pleased to welcome Uh, back, uh, Mr. James Williams. Mr. Williams is our county counsel, our legal counsel here in the county, and um, perhaps uh, equally important for the purposes of this call, he's one of the rotating directors for our emergency operations center, the EOC, uh, that has been managing the uh, COVID pandemic uh, for these past eight months now. Uh, In his uh, regular job, his day job, if you will, we uh, we uh, count on him to run an office of roughly uh, 200 folks, including 100 attorneys who represent our uh, county in legal matters. Uh, but as I say, he has also been serving as the uh, one of the rotating directors for our emergency operations center. And uh, his office, of course, uh, helps our public health officer uh, craft the public health orders that you all have become uh, familiar with over these last eight months. So. Uh, we're pleased to have him with us. Uh, Mr. Williams has been with the county now for more than 10 years, uh, was a, a graduate of Stanford Law School after uh, picking up his Bachelor of Arts degree at Princeton University. So very pleased to have him and the benefit of his expertise in terms of where things stand here in the county. And then um, we're also very pleased to be able to welcome uh, Dr. Hillary Godwin uh, to the call today. Uh, Dr. Godwin is the Dean of the University of Washington School of Public Health, uh, and also a professor in the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health Services—excuse me, Health uh, Sciences—at the University of Washington. But uh, she has played a key role uh, in uh, the COVID crisis management uh, in uh, King County, up in uh, Seattle area. Uh, She. Has a long background in public health before she was at the University of Washington. She was also at our Fielding School of Public Health at UCLA. She's uh, served at Northwestern University as well. Has some local ties. Uh, She completed her doctoral work in uh, physical chemistry at Stanford University some years ago. Uh, But perhaps most important and most relevant to today's conversation, uh, Dr. Godwin sits on the Seattle COVID Task Force where she was an early advocate for some of the non-medical uh, strategies to stop the spread of COVID, things like wearing masks and social distancing that we've all become so familiar with. So I welcome and thank uh, both uh, Mr. James Williams, our county council and Dr. Hillary Godwin. And again, for those of you who may be new uh, to the call, uh, the purpose really uh, today is to discuss the impact of uh, COVID-19 on our county, the county's response Uh, what the status of the situation is here and uh, what we can all do uh, to keep ourselves safe and healthy and where we're headed in the near future. Um, We want to make as much time as possible for your questions, so please, at any time during the call, if you'd like to ask a question, just push star 3 on your phone. Again, that's star 3 if you'd like to ask a question. We do have folks who are uh, all set to take your, uh, your questions and your calls and we'll try and put you in the queue. I should mention, uh, I know from past experience, we never have quite enough time to get to all the questions that we have. So uh, apologies in advance for that. But again, if you press star three, we will try to get you uh, into the uh, queue and the screeners are standing by. Uh, Format's pretty straightforward. Uh, I'm going to spend a couple of minutes on questions with uh, Mr. Williams about the status of things here in our county. Uh, Then uh, we're gonna have a poll actually I'd like to get your take on uh, how things are going here in Santa Clara County Then we'll take a couple of minutes for a couple questions with uh, Dr. Godwin and then we'll just go to your questions and if uh, history is any uh, Teacher on this one uh, the questions tend to be wide-ranging and we'll ask uh, one or both of our panelists to see if they can't help uh, give you a a timely and uh, uh, up-to-date response Uh, There are uh, more questions, as I say, than we ever have time for, so a reminder that there are updates about COVID-19 on our Santa Clara County Public Health uh, Department website, Uh, very helpful, uh, better and better with every passing week as we unfortunately have more and more experience uh, managing with and communicating about uh, the virus. Um, And of course, you can always go to my own uh, webpage, supervisorsummitian.com. So once again, uh, this is County Supervisor Joe Simmitdian. Thank you for joining us on the call. and uh, we will have time for your questions. Remember, just press star three uh, if you do have questions. So let's let's get to it uh, so that we can get to uh, questions from callers at the earliest opportunity. Uh, and I want to start with uh, Mr. James Williams, our County Council, and uh, one of our rotating directors for the Emergency Operations Center. Mr. Williams, I think probably most of our callers have been hearing about, reading about, the fact that uh, after we had moved from one colored tier to another to another, we had started in purple, progressed uh, to uh, uh, red, and then made our way into orange. Uh, As uh, things now stand, and as I look at the graph of our case count, it's a bit of a roller coaster, but we, uh, we now apparently have slipped back from orange into red, and uh there's even some discussion about the fact that uh we could slip all the way back into the purple tier i'm sure these colors are starting to get a little confusing for folks what is that is that an accurate understanding of where we are and where we might be headed unfortunately and if so what does that mean in terms of our restrictions for both residents and businesses here in the county
1: unfortunately it is Um, what we're seeing is not really uh, shouldn't be that surprising to those who are looking at what's happening elsewhere in the state and across the United States, uh, and in fact, in, in most parts of the world, where uh, we're seeing a, a surge of cases uh, all over the place and a surge of hospitalizations. And you know, what's been really concerning to us, looking at what's happening here locally in Santa Clara County, is if you see what what was going on in the month of October, there was kind of a slow drift upwards, but at a pretty gradual pace in terms of the number of cases. Uh, but what we've seen in just the last couple weeks, and it's really been accelerating, is a significant uh, increase in cases. And just to put that uh, put some numbers uh, behind that you know 335 newly reported cases today 330 yesterday 362 Friday these are numbers um that are as high as if not higher than uh, the peaks that we saw with the the wave of cases we had um in uh late July and so you know it's quite concerning and one of the things that's concerning about it is um, you know, with an exponential type of growth situation, which is how this virus behaves, um, you know, the risk of it getting uh, pretty quickly out of control is, is is quite concerning. Along with cases, we also know, and usually with a lag, we see hospitalizations, and then with an even greater lag, unfortunately, uh, deaths. Um, and our hospitalizations have also been rising. Um, we, we've had now uh, for, for about a week, hospitalizations uh, have cracked above 100. We've got um, uh, today about 135 COVID pos- positive patients in hospital. Um, significant increase in hospitalizations. There were 44 new hospitalized patients uh, reported on Friday, for example. Uh, And so that's got us concerned. Again, not, you know, we're we're seeing, you know, this is similar to what's been happening elsewhere in the region, in the state and across the country. Um, But it just reinforces that Santa Clara County is not an island. Um, And, you know, what we're seeing here is, is really concerning. Um, Well, you uh, you mentioned, you mentioned the
0: case counts, uh, Mr. Williams of, you know, well over 300 cases now uh, on a daily basis, and comparing our, uh, that with the experience we had in the summer. But um, you know, as I'm sitting here looking at my <clears throat> laptop, and I've got uh, truly a roller coaster ride in terms of the number of cases. Uh, going back to March, it's up, it's down, it's up, it's down, it's up, and now starting to go sharply up again. But I think the uh, if I understand the data correctly. Uh, the number of cases we've got today on a daily basis is literally three times that that we had on a daily basis just a month ago. Is that a correct assessment?
1: Yes. Yes. And, you know, a a small amount of that is due to some increased testing, which means we're finding more cases, but we actually look at that too. So we look at how many we might expect to see uh, and how many we're actually seeing. And uh, we're seeing a lot more, than we would expect to see with the slight increases in testing from October. Um, so, you know, this is a real increase in case count. We're also seeing uh, an increase in the positivity rate, again, consistent with what's been happening elsewhere uh, in the state and elsewhere in the nation. Uh, but that also is reflective of increased uh, community spread of the virus uh, here in Santa Clara County. And the
0: positivity rate, of course, is is simply the percentage of positive tests we get back. For every 100 we do, we're seeing higher numbers of folks coming back positive than we were just a month or so ago, yes? That's exactly right, yes. All right, thanks. I I, I think it's, uh, it would be helpful, Mr. Williams, so, you know, what is this going to mean in terms of restrictions? Uh, I know it can be a challenge for all of us uh, and certainly for members of the public are just trying to go about their daily routine to take a look at the county's public health orders and then match those against the state's purple uh, and uh, red and orange tiers. So what does this uh, slipping back from orange to red mean in terms of what we can or can't do as residents of the county?
1: Well, so you're exactly right in terms of what's happening with the tiers um, and you know, we will be entering red tier restrictions effective uh, Tuesday. Uh, What does that mean? Well, it means uh, that there are a number of riskier indoor activities uh, that can no longer occur, and it means some reduction in capacity. Um, And specifically in in our county, um, uh, our public health officer has uh, ordered closure of indoor dining is one of those activities that's particularly risky. Why? Because what we have learned so far about the virus is that outdoor activities are safer than indoor activities, and activities where you're wearing a face covering are safer than those where you're not. Well, indoor dining, unfortunately, is an activity where you're both indoors and inherently not able to wear a face mask, uh, and so that makes it one of the riskiest activities uh, so indoor dining is one of the things that will be closing but under the state's red tier um, there are a number of other changes mostly related to a reduced capacity and that's an effort to really try to just reduce the density the number of people in a space at the same time um, and so for most retail and, and you know including grocery stores and you know all sorts of kind of general retail uh, capacity be uh, limited to fifty percent. And then in certain other areas like gyms and fitness centers, uh, the limit the state under the state system for the tier is ten percent. Uh, and then there are a few other categories where activities can only be outdoors and not indoors. So that includes um, card rooms. Um, uh, family entertainment centers, bowling alleys, not allowed indoors, um, wineries, be outdoors only, uh, and then some other indoor activities closed like indoor pools. And that's all under the state's red tier. And, you know, folks who want to see that information with more granularity, uh, even though the Santa Clara County hasn't quite yet been moved on the state website into the red tier you can see what all those red tier restrictions are if you go to the state's uh, covid19.ca.gov uh, website you'll see all of the red tier related uh, capacity limits and what's uh, open and closed under that state system
2: And then you also
1: mentioned well you know what does this mean kind of looking forward and i think unfortunately what we're seeing in the region and in the state and locally, it would not be surprising, although we obviously don't know yet, but it wouldn't be surprising if we don't end up pretty quickly into the purple tier. Um, And that's just a reflection of how quickly cases have been surging. In fact, we would already definitely be there for the fact that the state actually gives us a significant downward adjustment in our case rate calculation, because of how much testing we do above the state average. And but for that adjustment, uh, without that adjustment, we would definitely already be uh, in the purple tier under the state's uh, four tier framework. All right, good to know. So,
0: what the purple are tier rec- comes. Excuse me, I was just going to say if people are trying to uh, reconcile all this information, their best bet is just to go to our county public health. Uh, web website and find the information there. Is that probably the easiest way to understand what is and
1: isn't permitted as the situation changes? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we have, um, you know, we continually keep that site updated. We have detailed FAQs. You know, we really try to do as much as we can um, on that website through the public health and emergency operations center, social media accounts. Um, We really try to provide people with the most up-to-date information with uh, the information on our tier status, with the information on what that means in terms of what activities can occur, and also what protocols people should be following, um, including businesses, for example, that need to be having their social distancing protocols on file. All of that information is available on our website. It's really quite, uh, quite comprehensive. All right. Well, what I'd like to
0: do now before we go to our second guest, uh, and thank you for sticking with us, uh, Mr. Williams, to help answer questions, uh, is uh, take a moment to just ask a a quick poll question uh, and no representation, of course, that this is a scientific sample. We've got thousands of folks on the line, but, uh, you know, there are uh, obviously a group who are particularly interested and engaged. So thank you again. But let me just ask all of you who are on the call if you can take a second to help us with the poll question. We've we've got a lot of folks who have uh, different opinions about whether or not our county has opened up too quickly, not quickly enough, uh, too much, not enough. So what I want to ask, and uh, I'll I'll explain how to punch the buttons here in a moment, is whether we're opening too slow, whether we've been opening too fast, are we at about the right pace, Uh, is it hard to know just because it's uh, a a little complex? So if you uh, think we are opening too slowly... Uh, Press 1. If you think we are opening too quickly, press 2. If you think we've been opening up uh, at more or less the right pace, please press 3. And if you just don't know, press 4. So again, press 1 for opening too slowly. Press 2 for opening too quickly. Press 3 for opening at about the right pace. And press 4 if you just don't know. So thank you for that, and we'll uh, share the results of that uh, poll in uh, just a couple of minutes. But uh, right now I want to get to Dr. Hillary Godwin. And Dr. Godwin, thanks again for joining us. As I mentioned, uh, Dr. Godwin is uh, with us from uh, Seattle, uh, which, as many of you will recall, uh, was one of the first uh, and he- most heavily impacted regions in the country, along uh, with Santa Clara County, of course. Uh, she is the uh, dean of the School of Public Health at the University of Washington and has been part of the uh, COVID task force uh, there in the city of Seattle. Uh, Dr. Godwin, I guess the question I would ask to help give us some perspective from outside the county is uh, what, what were the most important steps that, y- you know, your state and local governments took to stop the spread of, uh, of COVID? And are there things you're doing in Washington that you think might, might help us or transfer well to Silicon Valley?
3: Yeah, thanks for having me um, on your call and um, getting to your question about what did we do early on. um, One of the most critical things, which it sounds like is similar to what you guys have done there, was building capacity for doing our own testing and contact tracing. And I would say a really early shift compared to other regions to encouraging people who could telecommute um, to telecommute. And one thing that might that seems to me a little different when I look at the recommendations coming out of California Department of Public Health versus Washington State Department of Health, um, and certainly King County versus Santa Clara County, we have a huge push um, and very explicit push that um, workers who can work from home throughout um, this entire period have been encouraged to do so. Um, So the way that we frame that is there's limited amount of mobility capacity that we have or transmission capacity. And we're trying to save that for those essential workers who cannot work from home. We, like you, have a lot of tech workers. And so most of those folks have been working from home for um, pretty much the duration.
0: Got it. And, uh, you know, I, I think if we it, it, forgive me, I'm pausing here because I, I don't want to put the, the the weight of the world on your shoulders, Doctor. But uh, you know, I think a lot of folks are are COVID weary after eight months, uh, and they feel like uh, they've heard the same messages over and over again about washing their hands, wearing a mask, social distancing, uh, working from home if possible. And yet here we are, eight months later, uh, in uh, you know, not a great place. Uh, and it, it, so, you know, what do we say to those folks, uh, to, uh, persuade them, uh, if, if they should be persuaded that more of the same is going to get us to a better place. Uh, I'm sorry to frame it quite that way, but I, I know that's the question I get frequently from constituents these days.
3: Yeah, me too. <laughs> and, um, both within my own organization. And I have to say me personally, like when people say, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm just really, really tired of this whole COVID thing as I think pretty much everyone else is. Um, and yeah, it's hard to sort of keep at these, um, these things that um, might not seem like a huge, you know, such a huge heavy list in terms of wearing a mask or social distancing, but over time, just wear us down. We are social beings and want to be with other people. And these are things that sort of interfere with with that normal part of human existence that's really critical to all of us. So I totally sympathize with people um, having COVID fatigue. Um, that being said, I guess I would point to, uh, you know, I was actually on your Santa Clara um, Department of Public Health website and, um, and the California Department of Public Health website, looking at your stats. And you guys, like us, are actually doing great, right? So let's put this in a national context of like compared to other states right now, Washington and California and Oregon are all doing really well. And I think that's because we've had great leadership from our elected officials. They've, you know, worked together and also worked across you know state, local, county, local, um, and worked really closely with public health. So I would frame it as those things you've been doing have been working. Um, that's a big part of why we are doing so much better out here on the in the West Coast states. We did know that we were going to get a second wave in the fall just because that's what's typically seen with respiratory pathogens with cold weather because people start to congregate indoors. And it's pro- probably some COVID fatigue is also contributing to it. So what we're asking is, we know you're tired of it, but this is the time to double down and make sure that we continue to do as well as we can um, and hang in there, um, even though it, it's for all of us. It feels like a really long haul.
0: Got it. and. I, I think, um, and I'm sure, again, that we're all getting uh, the same questions, a lot of interest as um, talk about a, uh, a vaccine uh, has uh, started to uh, permeate the news, uh, conversations that uh, folks are having. Um, I, you know, Presumably everyone who's on the call is hoping that we're going to have a vaccine sooner rather than later. I'm curious, how effective do you think vaccines will be in, uh, you know, putting an end to the pandemic, and uh, how soon do you think residents can reasonably expect to get vaccinated? There seems to be a range of views on that subject as well.
3: Yeah, so, and I'm hearing all those range of predictions as well, Um, so I'll give you probably a range, but at least slightly sources. Um, So, I'm feeling much more optimistic about this as of the end of last week than I was for a long time. So we have really great news coming out of Pfizer. Their, the efficacy for their vaccine at, for the preliminary um, part of the trial is way better than most of us in public health could have reasonably hoped for. So that is fantastic news, and um, and it is clear that they are scaling up for distribution. So that's all good, um, and makes me more optimistic that you know that we might be have kids back in school in the fall um, next fall and and things like that. Um, but it's going to take a while to get that enough vaccine produced to get it out to the general population and also um, just the distribution part of it is going to be really challenging. So um, the estimates that I've seen, that probably the one that I, I give the most credence was I saw sort of percent estimates from Boston Consulting Group, um, who have been doing a lot of work in this area and, and synthesized across a lot of different types of input, suggested we could ex- had a 50% chance of having 25 million doses out of this vaccine by April. And that is a critical number because it, it would allow us to provide um, vaccination for our frontline health workers, um, some of the most vulnerable people in our in our country, like people who are in assisted living facilities, et cetera. Um, but it's, a small percentage of the total US population. So I'm sort of looking at, that's great, hopefully we can get the absolutely key people um, vaccinated um, in the next couple of months. Then it's gonna start the heavy lift of getting a couple hundred million doses um, distributed across the United States. That'll be challenging with the Pfizer vaccine um, because it requires to being kept cold um, and that requires an infrastructure that we honestly just don't have. Um, and also is a, the biggest vaccine campaign um, that we've ever launched in the United States. And so it's just, it's just logistically really challenging. And then it also requires two doses. So my personal hope is that some of these other vaccines that are currently in development um, will come out um, hopefully equally as as effective, or if not, at least pretty darn effective, um, but may not require the same kind of cold chain or two doses. And during this period where we're vaccinating key essential workers with the current vaccine, maybe some of those then become ready and um, it makes it a little easier to get um, vaccines out to the larger population. But I think realistically, I think we could anticipate that you know over the summer that we could start to expect to see that um that pe- everyone in the united states who wants vaccine um should have access to it um and that we'd start to have enough people vaccinated that we could expect to have um good coverage so that's sort okay, of the time that i think is realistic yes
0: yeah, thank you let me just ask two quick questions about all that dr godwin one is you were encouraged uh, and and indeed sounded excited about the uh, efficacy the, the the effectiveness of uh the pfizer virus uh, excuse me the fi- <laughs> pfizer vaccine rather um, uh, in terms of its effectiveness uh, do you do you think that process is transparent enough that those are numbers that uh, you can count on as opposed to just being marketing? Uh, hype or good news. Uh, again, we're in a world of increasing skepticism uh, as I talk to my constituents.
3: Yeah, so uh, obviously um, experts um, on clinical trial data analysis would like to have access to those data and make sure that they get the same uh, numbers that Pfizer gets, and I'm sure that will be forthcoming. Um, so so I guess I, I'm not of course, we want to do those checks, but I'm still encouraged by it. I think the 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 reason I sort of say well, 90% is because it's a relatively small number size, um, and we and we're still waiting for safety data as well, um, which will require a larger sample size. So we'll get those in the coming weeks and months from them as um, as as the number of people included in their study um, increases. Um, but uh, you know, I would say. For right now, it's the best possible news that we could have expected um, at this time.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Anne. I I understood you to say basically middle of next year uh, for really widespread uh, uh, vaccination, uh, vaccine. Did I get that more or less right? To sort of bottom line Yeah,
3: widespread having it been deployed and people have gotten the vaccine. I think that's probably right. right.
0: So does that mean, as we uh, are having this conversation right here in the middle of the month of November, that uh, a year from now, will we still be wearing masks?
3: That's a great question. Uh, I think it depends upon um, individuals and their vulnerability. So I could imagine um, that um, if people haven't had access to the vaccine or they have um, health risks that um, that make them particularly vulnerable to severe symptoms, um, or they are interacting with groups of individuals that don't um, aren't willing to get vaccinated. Um, those are certainly circumstances where you could imagine people continuing to wear masks, much like we've seen right. in Asia, people continuing to wear masks after SARS you know years later, they're still wearing masks pretty broadly.
0: All right, thank you, Doctor, appreciate it very much. And uh, what I want to do is just uh, quickly share the results of our uh, informal poll and uh, then go to questions because they are uh, coming in at a pretty good clip. So uh, let me just indicate that um, the results for today's poll, and again, the question was, has our county opened up too slowly, too quickly, at about the right speed, uh, or, you know, just don't know given the uh, complexity of the question, And we had 8% of our respondents today who said we had opened up too slowly. Uh, We had 27% who thought we had opened up perhaps too quickly. 45% said uh, about the right rate uh, of opening up. And uh, 20% said, you know what, just don't know uh, given the uh, complexity of the issue. So 8% too slowly, 27% too quickly, 45% said uh, just about right. And I should tell you since this is the third uh, call in a row where we've asked this question a little more concerned that the county may have opened up too quickly and uh, only speculation on my part. But I would speculate that that's because uh, we see the news uh, uh, across the country uh, and uh, certainly up and down the state of California and even here in our own county. And um, I'm guessing that that uh, prompts some people to think perhaps we have opened up uh, too quickly uh, I, but again, a range of views which we see uh, every time we ask this question. I do want to go to questions now. We have questions both from folks who are on the call as well as uh, folks who are participating and listening in online. We're going to try and get to as many of those as possible. So let me just uh, jump right in and I'm going to start with a question. Uh, we're going to go to the caller. Gay in Saratoga has a question about uh, you know, where we're seeing these problems. Uh, and uh, perhaps uh, we can go to Gay in Saratoga. She's still on the line, I believe. Gay, what's your
3: question? Hi, Hi Joe. Thanks for doing these town halls. Yeah, the uh, Mr. Williams was talking about, uh, obviously, the increase. I wonder if he could be more specific about which hospitals are incurring the greatest load for COVID?
0: James Williams, anything... So uh,
1: yeah, you know the the increases that we're seeing are pretty across the board, um, and including from in hospitalizations uh, and in cases. Although we know that the areas that have consistently been more heavily impacted are, of course, seeing also the heaviest impacts. And so, um, as we have reported repeatedly for now for many months, we're seeing the highest rates. Um, in East San Jose and in South County, in particular Gilroy area. Um, and so, you know, you know, one of the more heavily impacted hospitals as a result is, is, uh, you know, the hospitals in those areas, but it's really across, across the board. Um, and what, one of the things we're seeing with this increase in, in cases is that, um, you know, case counts are climbing kind of everywhere. Um, so it's, um, it's reflective of broader community transmission.
0: All right, thank you. And uh, let me just say, uh, we have a number of questions sort of around this uh, same topic of uh, the increased hospitalization and uh, local hotspots. Let me go to Robert in uh, Mountain View who has a a question uh, in that uh, category. We'll try and stay with this uh, theme for just a moment or two. Robert, are you still with us? Yes, I am. Uh, Thank you for taking my call. Um you know the the tier system uh is good, but it's unsatisfying uh and the reason is its granularity is too coarse uh Santa Clara County is a huge county,
2: and uh someone like me wants to know uh in in greater detail where the hot spots are and and how we can continue to
0: find out where the hot spots are Mr. Williams, any thoughts about that? Yeah.
1: Yeah, actually, I, I think this is an important, really important point. Um, I think that you know what you know. With the big caveat, I'm obviously not the public health officer, and I'm not an epidemiologist, but um, but I do get the honor of working with them. And um, and you know what I would share is you know we're really uh, a region, and that's one of the reasons why early on we really tried very hard to be. Uh, working cooperatively as a region. And so what that means is where people live and where people work, um, uh, it's is it, is it crosses not just boundaries within a county, but boundaries across counties quite significantly. And so what we're seeing, for example, right now is actually the whole Bay Area region uh, with rising case counts, pretty at a pretty similar rate from county to county you know, slight differences, but the reality is that cases and hospitalizations are rising in Contra Costa and in Alameda and in San Francisco and San Mateo uh, and Marin and so forth. Um, And so we really interact uh, actually much more regionally than even within a county level. And likewise, within our county, the fact that uh, there may be, you know, more residents, for instance, in Certain zip codes or areas, you can find uh, zip code level information and city level information on the dashboards that we publish on our website. Uh, but the fact that there may be some, that may there, there may be more residents in certain zip codes or certain cities, uh, that doesn't tell you where they got uh, infected, doesn't tell you where they work, and many of them may be essential workers who are working as grocery store clerks or working as uh, firefighters or working as nurses or uh healthcare aides or others all over the county or all over the region. Um, and so with this level of increasing community transmission of the virus, I think it's really important to keep that in mind uh, and that's why it's so critical that we across the board are very careful about things like uh, face masking, things like social distancing, and strict adherence to, you know, the social distancing protocols that we have in place.
0: Doctor Godwin, if I could ask you, uh, obviously you're not in a position to comment on our um, hotspots or concentrations here in Santa Clara County, but I'm I'm curious to know in Seattle and King County, where you're doing uh, much of your work, uh, has this has this question or topic been uh, a, a, a frequent one? Are people um, struggling with uh, some of the the balances to be struck between privacy and transparency. I'm I'm just curious about your take on the the caller's sort of question about, uh, you know, how how detailed can we uh, hope to get the information so people have an understanding of what's happening out there?
3: Yeah, our situation is very, very similar to yours. I mean, for people who don't know, King County and Santa Clara County have almost the exact same population size and Pretty similar demographics, pretty diverse counties, but also, you know, large presence of, of tech industries. And so, um, some similar things going on there. Um, and so, I am actually looking at your cases by zip code and city and seeing something that looks very similar to King Ca- on the Santa Clara um, Health Department uh, website. And it looks very similar to what we have here. So, just as um, Mr. Williams said, You know, there's variation from zip code to zip code, but the reality is in both of our counties, there's so much um, mobility across the county um, that probably those differences reflect socioeconomic factors and types of jobs that people have who live in those counties, as opposed to um, more than than like that there's particular risk in one area or another. but yeah, we have the same conversations about sort of like um, uh, you know access to to data. Um, recently, that's come up in the context of notification apps and how it, use of notification apps. Um, and I think we've come to a good place working with um, public health um, depart the public health department and um, local tech to come up with solutions um, that'll be rolled out later this month. That protect people's um, personal information, but allow them to um, share that information if they wish, if they become positive. So that's an interesting new development.
0: Good. All right. Thank you for that. Mr. Williams, as I mentioned, a lot of questions uh, that are in some way related to the increased number of cases and hospitalizations. Let me go to Monica and Cupertino who has a question about the nature of the hospitalizations and uh, the demographics. Monica and Cupertino, you still with us?
3: I sure am. Thank you so much for taking my call and thank you for this um, forum. It's really been helpful. So my question about the demographics um, of the hospitalizations, if you're seeing the same trends, is this mostly elderly patients that are seeking hospitalization or do we see any shift to younger people um, being hospitalized?
0: Mr. Williams, I I know you're not the doctor on the call, but do do you have a handle on that here locally?
1: The trends we're we're seeing now are roughly similar to what we've seen kind of throughout the pandemic here locally. Um, I actually don't know the demographic trends for hospitalizations, but I do know them for the cases. Um, And uh, what we have been seeing is consistent pattern is that you know the the case the both the surge that we had in July and the one we're having now, uh, the cases are being driven by uh, folks age 18 through 34, um, but the hospitalizations do of course trend older and uh, and of course the fatalities trend older and we have I know the the age demographics broken out and detailed on our dashboard related to both the cases and the deaths uh, in our county. So those patterns have been pretty consistent and we're not seeing um, a lot of hospitalizations or or fatalities from young kids, which is something that's also been very consistent uh, across the country uh, throughout the pandemic as well. Um, but you know, mo- it, it appears from you know, what we've seen the last few months, a lot of the activity as younger adults, and then you know, perhaps they're passing it on to household members or relatives or others who might be in more vulnerable uh, age categories or have other medical conditions, and then that leads to those folks uh, getting hospitalized, and that leads to, uh, unfortunately, Serious illnesses and deaths, so that's been a somewhat consistent pattern that we've seen for several months
0: and dr. Godwin, uh, are you seeing any changes and or clear patterns in terms of uh who who's uh, showing up uh, most uh most frequently in uh, in the hospital with the need for uh, attention
3: now we we we' actually just reviewed these data this week um, at, at the city level, and it's pretty has been pretty consistent. We had a spike um, in young adult cases um, when um, school, universities came back into session, um, but the, currently what we're seeing in terms of the distribution and age groups is pretty consistent with what it's been across the board, and same thing with hospitalizations, um, tends to skew towards older individuals and obviously people who have high risk
0: thank you uh, back to mr williams we have a question from lee in mountain view uh, because uh, he's raising the, the point that with these additional cases that uh, obviously we need to make sure we've got capacity uh, to, to handle them so let me go to lee in mountain view and let him uh, fill out his question a little bit more fully lee thanks for joining us
2: Oh, well, thanks for having me <clears throat> I enjoy the the questions and answers. My question is that there's no question that we are spiking even further in terms of the number of people that are getting the virus.
0: My question is, do we have the bed to take care of them? It seems to me that uh, capacity is already, from the conversation, is already uh, critical, and we're still getting more and more cases, and it's
2: not likely to slow down not until the virus vaccine is actually useful. So what is the prognosis for, or what's the status of creating more beds?
0: Mr. Williams, that I know is a topic that uh, you're familiar with because you and I have been talking about this yes. for eight months. So what's your
1: uh, what's your response yeah, yes. for our caller? Yes, yeah, so this is something we've been very concerned about from day one. The county itself actually runs one of, of course, our largest hospital systems uh, owning and operating valley medical center o'connor hospital and saint Louis hospital um, and so you know we're very much uh, attuned to what's happening uh, with hospitals and hospital bed capacity and have been right from March. Uh, that was one of our biggest concerns right from the get-go seeing what was happening uh, in italy seeing what was happening in the rest of europe uh, and other parts of the us and that spurred us uh, to act so swiftly back then with the with the first shelter-in-place order. Um, we've kept a cl- very close eye on bed capacity. We have a dashboard that provides that information. Right now, uh, locally, we're doing okay, but we know what's happening elsewhere in the country. We know what's going on in Utah. We know what's going on elsewhere, and it's something we remain quite concerned about, and we know there's a lack between... Uh, Spikes in cases, and when um, you know when people show up at the hospital with a serious illness, and we want to make sure that there's a bed available. So we um, have a whole unit in our emergency operations center that's been continually staffed, that's dedicated and focused on hospital system preparedness. That works and coordinates with the hospitals, uh, all the acute care hospitals in Santa Clara County. We have me monitor there. PPE situation, for example, very closely. We have reserve stockpiles that we can provide through the emergency operations center. We monitor their staffing. Staffing is actually one of the biggest challenges for hospitals in dealing with uh, surge issues. Um, so we monitor that closely and working with them. Uh, and they're all also, of course, well aware of what's happening um, nationally. Um, so that that work is very much been ongoing uh, and is on kind of renewed focus given uh, the increase in cases that we're seeing now. I'll also add that the county has taken steps to uh, make sure that there is increased capacity. For example, DePaul, which is one of the facilities that was part of the, uh, when the county acquired O'Connor and St. Louis hospitals out of bankruptcy, those hospitals were going to close. And when the county bought those out of bankruptcy we also got the DePaul property and we've invested over the last several months and, and are bringing online uh, a number of uh, of beds there to help deal with some potential service so this is all uh, work that's been well underway um, you know that being said we do have to uh, take these broader community measures to bring control of the cases because um, even with all of these efforts, um, there's, you know, if, if the exponential growth continues unchecked, of course, it will outstrip our ability to handle. Um, and that's something that I think none of us wants. Thank
0: you, uh, Mr. Williams. And I'll just add for Lee and our other listeners, um, I, in, in my role as a county supervisor, uh, coincidentally, I serve as chair. Of the county's health and hospital committee, uh, and there were, uh, and each of us, uh, you know, has focused on the board on uh, different pieces of the challenge along the way. I was particularly uh, focused in the early days, uh, back in March and April, uh, on <clears throat> two issues: one, testing, uh, where we've now, I think, ramped up our, our testing in a way that uh, has uh, really provided great benefit, but also this issue that Lee raised about. Our capacity, if uh, things got um, out of hand, uh, would we have the surge capacity, And as Mr. Williams has described it, uh, the beds, the ventilators, the professional staff, the personal protective equipment, all of that. Um, And so it it is a subject that um, people are very attentive to, and I thought the phrase you used, Mr. Williams, renewed focus, uh, was the apt one, given the fact that uh, we're starting to see numbers that make us think – Got to be sure we're, we're ready to go uh, if things uh, keep heading in the wrong direction. Related to that, and I think the question is from MJ uh, in Palo Alto. Let me see if MJ is still on the line. I think so. Uh, MJ, you've, you've got a sort of a bottom line question here about what these numbers mean. Why don't we let you ask it?
3: Uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I'd like to know if the percentage of fatalities is increasing or is it under control?
0: So, Mr. Williams, we ha- we you, you've referenced the increased number of cases and hospitalizations. Uh, where does that put us uh, with fatalities? And, um, you know, particularly because we uh, have learned so much during these past eight months, uh, you know, are we able to hold the line on loss of life?
1: Well, there's some good news and some bad news in there. I think that, the, you know, the good news is that one thing that's been very apparent over the last several months is that the average length of stay in the hospital has come substantially down. Uh, the ability to treat seems to have improved significantly. I think, in part, that's probably due to some of the um, some of the new uh, drugs and treatments that are available. It's not a cure, but they they definitely appear to be helping. Um, And I think due to the fact that uh, doctors and and the hospitals are, um, you know, just much more now familiar uh, with COVID and how to treat it. Um, And so that's good news. Uh, The bad news is, you know, our deaths do continue to add up. And, um, you know, day by day, we see that those, those numbers come in. And that's particularly true. When this uh, virus gets into long-term care facilities or other vulnerable populations, where it really spreads, leads to serious illness, and leads to death, um, and you know we provide that tracking also as one of our dashboards. We really have such a rich data set on the website for people to take a look at. But um, but that's you know it's very very hard to protect those vulnerable populations and communities when the level of virus transmission in the community at large increases. Um, And so that's one of the areas of concern. We have a whole team that's focused specifically on providing support to those kinds of facilities, also other congregate settings like, for example, uh, jails or homeless shelters and the like, uh, where there's also similar types of risk. Um, but even with those efforts, it becomes very, very hard, and uh, there can be a lot of hospitalizations and a lot of deaths coming out of uh, those kinds of facilities and other kinds of uh, senior care centers and so forth um, and you know I know that's that's been true elsewhere in the country as well um, and you know it's it's just it's a sobering uh, reality disease. Dr.
0: Godwin, uh, what's your experience uh, in the Northwest uh, with respect to fatality rates over time? We've we've been uh, in the pandemic battle now for eight months. Um, What's your take?
3: Yeah, we like you. Um, It's almost exactly the same thing. Great news is that we're doing better at treating people um, the sobering news is that those pe- the case fatality rate for people who end up in the ICU is still quite high for this disease. Um, and so, you know, I think our, our best approach is to keep people from getting to the point um, that they need ICU care. And, and that's why you're seeing us, you know, rolling back um, different um, Opportunities for people to mingle with each other and transmit, um, which you guys are referring to as the going from orange to red or red re- restrictions to purple restrictions. We're similarly doing the same thing here, um, while at the same time trying to make sure that we have as much capacity as we can. But our real goal is to keep people out of the ICU, um, and that's that's where most of our efforts are, you know, in parallel going on right now, and so. You know in addition to the travel announcement that we had across the three states encouraging people not to travel outside um the state or um the country we in washington our governor actually came out with a recommendation that people not gather for thanksgiving with anyone outside their immediate household um so i'm having that conversation with my oregon and and california families later this afternoon um, because i know the same thing hasn't been rolled out in California and Oregon, but I think those type of, of restrictions are sort of the path that, that we're probably heading towards um, just with the goal of trying to keep people as safe as possible um, while respecting that everyone is really tired of this and that the holidays are time that we normally want to be together. Um, but as, what I said to my mom yesterday on the phone was, um, my goal is that she not get sick at a point where I know three weeks from now our ICUs are going to be even more impacted. I want her to, I don't want her to get sick at a time when she might not have access to the best care. So, Got it. you know, the better that, part of valor being restricting.
0: Thank you, Doctor. And, and for both of you, that that leads uh, nicely into a question from we have a number of very sort of practical day-to-day how-do-I-go-about-my-life questions, so I want to try and pivot to those. And you mentioned the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday. Let me go to Isaac in Palo Alto, uh, who uh, has a question on just this topic, I believe. Isaac, are you still with us?
2: Yes, I am. Um, thank you. Um, thank you for ho- holding this uh, town town hall. Um, so will Santa Clara County be uh, limiting or restricting the number of individuals or people from different families that can congregate in one household for uh, Thanksgiving? And if so, I, how would that be enforced?
1: Okay, I'm going to turn to James so, Williams. Yes, so the state has uh, already has a, a restriction in place on social gatherings, um, and those uh, gathering rules are basically this, that uh, you can only be together with up to three households and only outdoors, so not indoors, uh, and only up to three households. Uh, and at this time, that's that's what's in place, including you know, and what would be applicable at this time anyway for uh, for Thanksgiving. Um, we know that the risk is so much more significant indoors than outdoors, um, and so that's one big reason for that state uh state kind of social gathering um directive and uh and that of course the more households you bring together the more the greater the risk as well. Um so that rule is applicable here in Santa Clara County as well. Um you know you asked also about enforcement. You know that's a that's that can be a challenge. Um you know we don't have folks going and knocking on people's doors obviously. Um, not only do we not have the infrastructure for that, that's also just not how the county is designed. Um, and um, and so, you know, our expectation is that people are paying attention to that. It's for their safety. It's for community safety. Um, it's for the safety of friends and family and relatives. And, um, and right now, you know, is especially an important time and it is hard. You know, we, and we've been at this for many months, um, and this is exactly the time of year when we all want to be with our families, and so that makes it all the harder. But um, but to the point raised earlier, you know, <laughs> this is not the time when I think you want your family to be getting sick and trying to get a hospital bed, uh, and so it's all the more important to be vigilant about that. Um, one Mr. of the other Mr. Things I Williams, say, excuse,
0: the, I think... excuse the interruption. I, I just want to make this very simple and very tangible for our callers. And I apologize for cutting in, but I, uh, you know, because uh, we've had these conversations, um, uh, you know this question is coming. So, just to be clear, if my wife and I wanted to invite our sister and brother in law over for Thanksgiving dinner, that is prohibited if we do it indoors under the public health order right now here in Santa Clara County. Yes? Yes. Yes. Based on the state's uh, gathering directive, yes. Got it. But if we wanted to have uh, our sister and brother-in-law come over and join us for Thanksgiving dinner outdoors, outside, in the backyard, that is allowed under the state order because we are three households or less. Yes? Yes. All right. Thank you for that. And let me just ask Dr. Godwin. Dr. Godwin, do those rules make sense to you?
3: Yeah, they totally make sense. I Actually, I would encourage people to check out the California Department of Public Health guidance um, on this because it's really helpful. They go into a lot of details of do's and don'ts and really at a very practical level of things that can be helpful, like not having passing food around the table, things like that. Um, but yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think the sobering news for us here in Washington, is, you know, we're a little bit more, we have tended to be a little bit more proactive about restrictions than California has. Um, and so it didn't surprise me that our governor, we, we aren't forbidden um, from gathering, but he has strongly encouraged so far people not to gather with people outside their household. Um, and I could imagine that could change in the, the coming week just as we're, we're really, you know, it's really just trying to keep people safe.
0: All right. Let me just uh, go to Ruth then in Sunnyvale, who has a very direct question about uh, what works and what doesn't. Ruth, are you still with us?
2: Yes, I'm still here.
3: I was curious. Tell us your question. Well, I eat out all the time, so I bring the food home. I put it in the microwave and wash my hands. I'm wondering, does that kill off the COVID virus? And my mail, I leave in my atrium for a few days before I open it.
0: All right. Let me check with Dr. Godwin. Dr. Godwin, if uh, if the caller brings their take-home food uh, back to the house and reheats it in the microwave, what's the impact of the microwave on the virus, if
2: any?
3: Yeah, so we have, to my knowledge, not seen any cases of COVID being transmitted through food. So that's the good news. Um, so, um, you know, your biggest risk with take out food would be the interaction with the delivery person. So I'd recommend if you are getting it delivered, have them do a no contact delivery. And then you're absolutely right, the thing, you know, there's some worry about that external packaging, so I would take it out of that external packaging and wash your hands. But um, that should, you know, in the grand scheme of things, be a relatively low risk thing. Um, so uh, I wouldn't worry about that too much. Like I said, it's more the interaction with someone dropping off the food or you at the pickup site where you want to minimize and how about, contact.
0: And how about letting the mail sit uh, for a couple of days before? Uh, yeah,
3: opening. so. <laughs> So I'm, I'm guilty of, I also encouraged my parents to do that early on in the pandemic, um, because we didn't know how this this um, virus was going to behave, and we do know with, for instance, flu, um, transmission from surfaces is a real problem. What we've seen with COVID is that is less of a problem with COVID, that um, the higher risk of transmission comes from um, droplets and aerosols, which is why we're asking people to wear masks and stay six feet apart from people. Um, So it's still important to wash your hands after something comes in from the outside, but less important that we thought it might have been early on of sort of, my mom calls it quarantining her mail. There's nothing wrong with doing it, but it's, you know, I would say more important to, after you open it, set it aside, wash your hands before you you know, engage in anything where you might end up touching your face.
0: All right. Thank you. We have a number of questions that came in online, so I'm just going to read those out and see if we can get um, some quick answers. Uh, Mr. Williams uh, Venkat, who uh, uh, asked a question online, wanted to know about meeting outdoors and social distancing. Is there a count limit? You mentioned that for social gatherings, three different households is part of the limit. Any other uh, number limits we should be aware of as we're uh, uh about to reenter the uh red zone uh, on Tuesday?
1: Yes, yeah, so for the for the under the state's rules um for social gatherings or any other kind of non uh, what I'll call first amendment type gatherings anything other than a religious service or um or a political event or something like that, uh, the state's rules limit you to three households. It's not a number, it's three households. Um, and I think they're thinking there is, you know, each each household is its own kind of contained um, set of contacts. Um, so, yeah, so that's the, the state rule there. Um, and then there's a total number cap on um, activities. Um, such as religious services and and the like, uh, under the state's rules in the red tier of 100 people.
0: So I have a card, in fact, uh, in front of me with a question from Wendy, who's participating online. Thanks, Wendy, uh, who specifically asked, what restrictions are there on places of worship? Uh, How would you uh, uh, elaborate a little bit on that one, if you would? I heard you say 100. Anything else uh, we should know? Yes.
1: Yeah. So just just like uh, any other business or entity or organization uh, or facility, um, we require that there be a social distancing protocol and that people wear face coverings and that people maintain uh, social distance. Uh, so those are just applicable just across the board for religious services. Uh, you know, for mass, for example, or any other type of religious service, uh, the the limit is 25% of capacity or 100 people, whichever is uh, fewer. So that's that's the applicable limit, and that's the limit under the state's uh, red tier, and that's also the local limit that we've uh, even had in place um, uh, locally while we've been in Orange.
0: All right. We have another online question, this one from Robert, who just asks, is it safe to serve on a jury? Mr. Williams, I'll start with you, and then I'll go to Dr. Godwin, see what her experience is.
1: Yeah, so we've we've done a lot of work with the court uh, uh, here locally on uh, the protocols that the court has put in place, including the court has issued its own strict uh, face masking order, for example. It has a its own protocols in place for social distancing its own protocols in place for uh, courtrooms for that distancing um, and, and so forth uh, and so they've really taken specific steps and one of our assistant health officers has been you know personally out to the courts uh, to help them with that guidance given that it is of course a really essential function that needs to continue to operate uh, but that uh, has had to have modifications to be able to do so in a safer manner. So the the short answer is yes, the court has very specific protocols uh, in place Uh, and jury service is an important duty that we have
0: uh, as a community. All right, Dr. Godwin, I'm I'm curious, has this been an issue uh, in your experience in Seattle and King County?
3: You know, that is the first time I've ever gotten that question. Um, and so I actually don't know. Uh, I mean, by law, we would be required, just as you guys would, to have um, a COVID safe plan in place um, to protect individuals. I, to me, a, probably a more interesting question, and I totally agree with Mr. Williams, of um, you know, this is an important function and we don't wanna be discouraging people from participating um, what, and what is a really important part of our um, democracy. Um, that being said, I could imagine that if someone had uh, high risk factors that made them vulnerable for severe disease, I could imagine that that might be a reason to get excused, but I don't know. I actually don't know about that.
0: All right, well, I will let you know, Dr. Governor, it's uh, not the first time uh, that we've gotten the question. It comes up uh, fairly frequently. And um, here in California, our court system is uh, independent of our county government uh, in large measure. Uh, so there is this cooperation and coordination, but uh, our courts are really a creature of the state these days. And so um, the courts are, uh, to some uh, extent, uh, operating uh, separate and apart, but we hope in cooperation and coordination with. Our public health officials here at the county. Uh, one more online question before I go back to uh, folks who uh, are uh, handling the call live. Um, and the online question is from Sally, who just wants to know how can ordinary people get quick tests before visiting relatives. Mr. Williams,
1: well, we have a lot of uh, testing resources available. I encourage people to go to our website sccfreetest.org. Um We've Significantly increased uh, capacity at the fairgrounds site, which is a drive-through site. There's uh, sites at the different cities, uh, different city on different days. You can schedule well in advance, um, a week in advance. Um, so you can go now and, and schedule an appointment. Um, and in addition, there's a lot of testing now available um, through other providers and large healthcare systems. Uh, And all that information is available there as well. But the testing infrastructure has increased so significantly uh, since the early days of the pandemic, uh, and uh, Santa Clara County has really been quite robust uh, in increasing that testing capacity, as Supervisor and I know you know very well.
0: Thank you, uh, Mr. Williamson. Sally, and for others as well, uh, the the turnaround time on tests has improved. Uh, that is Im- important, obviously, uh, in making good use of the results. Uh, you can't uh, make thoughtful decisions and uh, comport yourself uh, the way you want to if you don't know what the results are in a timely fashion. Uh, to Mr. Williams's point, I will say uh, that while there's been a heavy emphasis on testing in East San Jose and in uh, what we call South County in the Gilroy area because those are hot spots where we want to identify folks. Um, We have now got a a series of what we call pop-up testing sites in the smaller communities, many of which are in my district, which is uh, why I have uh, focused so much on making sure that there are regularly scheduled visits uh, in places like Palo Alto, Los Altos, Los Altos Hills. Sunnyvale, Cupertino, Saratoga, Mountain View, uh, and on and on. So um, it, please feel free to do, uh, go to uh, sccfreetest.org uh, or go to my webpage, supervisorsimidian.com, uh, 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 and we'll, um, uh, we'll, we'll find you uh, a, a site there, or you should be able to find a site there. Uh, there are enough of these uh, pop-up sites, as we call them now, that Uh, You can access one uh, pretty quickly and in close proximity in most cases. And just to underscore it, you don't have to be from the city or town where the test is taking place. So uh, anyone uh, who shows up uh, uh, and has signed up for a test in Palo Alto, for example, can take the test there. Anyone who has signed up for a test uh, in Sunnyvale can take the test there. So um, uh, I think we have made some significant progress there, and that's uh, a bit of good news. Uh, let me go, uh, speaking of testing, uh, we've got oh, a question from, can, oh, can
3: Dr. I, can I, can I, please. yeah, can I jump in for just a second in terms of do. the value of, of testing? So, one thing I, I wanted to emphasize is that when people are getting tested, um, they need to be asking for PCR-based tests, um, because those um, are the most likely to give you an accurate response. So um, as opposed to antigen-based tests, which have high rates of um, giving false positives and false negatives. So you wanna ask for a PCR-based test, that's one. And then the second is that um, just to remind people that a a negative test, even with the PCR-based test, doesn't mean that you couldn't develop COVID um, after that. Um, So we can only pick up cases when people have a certain amount of virus in their body. Um, And so we've seen examples, for instance, when we've done repeat testing on campus with our students uh, where a student will come up negative for two days and then turn positive as the amount of virus um, in their body increases. So it's really important to combine that testing. The testing is great and we want you to do it, but combine that testing with um, self-quarantining yourself, not Um, hanging out with other people um, before you get tested Um, that those are you need to do both of those things it's like a network of of prevention Um, just the testing by itself doesn't mean bingo you're you're completely safe Um, we want people to also be doing the staying away from other people as well
0: well thank you doctor that that leads actually to a question going back to our, our folks who are hanging on the phone lines here um, uh, we have a question for Matt in Sunnyvale about just this issue. Let me see if Matt is uh, still with us. I think uh, Matt's still on the line. Oh, Back, I'm uh, here,
2: and I'm very interested in everything that you guys are talking. Thank you so much for doing this. This, this is really uh, up to date and very uh, informational. Again, thank you. And uh, quick comment I don't want to be in the hospital anytime, anytime now or never. So I'm t- trying to do the right thing. We have three households, two daughters. We're going to get together. I basically want to hug my grandson, only grandson. The first one uh, was born in March. I was able to do that after self-quarantine of you know, 14 days. Once I want to get to him, I want to hug him. So that's my motivation. So I want to do it as safely as I can. What is the safest period of quarantine where I can get the test and then uh, feel that it gives me the highest degree of confidence? And then related the question. What is the false positive rate of the no-swap test that my doctor ordered for me?
0: All right. So, Doctor, the first part of the question, of course, is how long should uh, someone wait after being tested and keeping themselves isolated before they get together with family? And then uh, what is the confidence rate for those PCR tests you were talking about?
3: Yeah. So um, the best period of time to self-quarantine yourself would be for 14 days, so that would be not interacting with people from outside your household um, for extended periods of, you know, more than 10 minutes, um, and and any interactions would be maxed and you're socially distanced and all of that kind of good stuff, so um, doing that for 14 days prior. And then you want to get tested within, ideally, a 72-hour window of when you're going to get together with your relatives. Um, so somewhere between, and it, and you have to take into account that, like, you want to get tested as close to the time that you're seeing them as, pos, as possible, um, while at the same time giving yourself enough time to get the results back. So this is where uh, Mr. Williams will be super helpful in terms of being able to tell you that typical turnaround time but let's say the typical turnaround time is one day then you could get tested two days before or three days before but if the turnaround time is more like two days then you'd want to get tested three days before so you can get the result back in time
0: so for our caller you're actually recommending if I understood you correctly doctor what I'm going to call a pair of tests one that's uh, sort of 14 days out uh, followed by isolation and then uh, sort of a double check uh, shortly before any visitor contact. Did I get that right?
2: Yeah.
3: um, We actually don't – I mean, we aren't pushing the 14 days prior. We're just recommending that you just self-quarantine for those 14 days. Um, Yeah.
0: All right. And the confidence rate in the PCR test, which was the other part of our question uh, from uh, the caller?
3: Yeah. So the confidence rate is – it is a good test. It's you know the best test that we have right now. That being said, um, like I said, the biggest issue is the the problem of that um, after you get infected, it takes a while for the amount of virus to build up in your body in order for you to have enough virus for it to be detected by the test. And so if you're at the early part of that stage after having been exposed, where the virus is still building up in your body, you could come up with a negative test, um, even though maybe the next day or two days later you come up as positive, not because you've been newly exposed, but just because it was too early in your infection for it to pick up. So it's not really a problem with the test as much as it is just the reality of the complexities of um, the things that make COVID so frustrating (laughs) it's just it that long incubation period um, and the potential for infecting many other people when you have no indication that you're sick is one of the things that just makes COVID really challenging and has made it really hard to control
0: all right thank you and one more question from a caller on uh, this issue Uh, Pat in Santa Clara Pat P in Santa Clara Uh, Can you share your question, please? And thank you for joining us on the call.
2: Okay. Um, My question is about asymptomatic carriers. Um, Has anybody figured out how long they shed virus? Uh, Is it the same as other people? And I don't even know what that is. I think it's maybe two weeks or something in general. And I know it's not a hard and fast rule, but do we have any guidelines at all on the asymptomatic carriers?
0: doctor
3: yes yeah yes we do so if um you know that you have been exposed or have good reason to think that you have been exposed to someone who has COVID-19 um you should quarantine for 14 days even if you have no symptoms whatsoever um and uh and and recognize that um you could feel fine for that entire time. You could even come up with a negative test, but you still need to quarantine for those 14 days um, for the reasons that I talked about previously.
0: All right, thank you. I wanna try, uh, we have so many good questions and my apologies to those of you uh, who uh, we just can't get to today, but I wanna try and bundle a couple of batches on uh, two last issues. Uh, And the first Dr. Godwin is uh, uh, mostly gonna be for you and they are around, uh, the questions are around the topic of uh, vaccination, vaccines. Um, we have an online question uh, or two that I'll just read and ask you to sort of keep in mind. And then I'm going to take three questions in a row from folks on the, on the call uh, to see if we can uh, toss out the sort of range of issues here. Uh, Lorraine online wants to know, is there any idea how safe the vaccine will be for immunocompromised residents? Jeff wants to know uh, how long is it likely to be between the first and second shot, and then how long after the second shot uh, will the vaccine still be fully effective? So questions about the vaccine in that way. And then uh, Yuri in Campbell has a question. Uh, Let me see if Yuri is still on the line. I believe so. Yuri, what's your question, please? Uh, About
3: the vaccine. When you get the vaccine. Uh, usually, like, the county health department gets you a, a paper that says that you have been tested and, um, you know, whatever it is. Now, I mean, that you have a vaccine. However, when you travel abroad, if you don't have that test uh, paper, we have no proof of it. So do you know whether the vaccines are going to be uh, given with a uh, uh, confirmation paper? All right. Hold that thought,
0: please. Thank you. And we also have a question from uh, Cindy in San Jose. Cindy, are you still with
3: us? Yes, I sure am. Thank you so much for this wonderful forum. It's very informative. Um, I have a family member who has rheumatoid arthritis, and I'm sure there are other conditions where folks cannot take live vaccines. And I've been doing some research on this, and I've not been able to find anywhere if it's a live vaccine or not. So that's my question.
0: All right, thank you. And then one last call, uh, and this one from Cupertino on the subject of vaccinations. And uh, I believe the name is Byron. Excuse me if I've misread or mispronounced the name. Let me see if Byron and Cupertino is still with us. Apparently not. But uh, the question that was asked uh, from Cupertino is, nice to hear the good news about the vaccine, but are there antiviral medications coming? So, Dr. Godwin, that gave you a lot to work with on the subject of uh, vaccines. So let's, uh, let's start with um, how long between the first and second shot, and uh, uh, how long uh, do we think the vaccine will be effective for after that second shot?
3: Yeah, so um, I, I believe that the protocol um, is that the two shots are separated by three weeks. Um, that's how they be, I believe that's how they've been running the trial. And then they test for um, immune response um, a week after that. So they're seeing good response basically a month after, or four weeks after um, the original shot, assuming you get the second shot. Um, and we don't know how long it will last for. Um, this has been another one of the big challenges with this, this virus is that, um, that we have seen cases of people even who had um, the actual disease get reinfected. And so we don't know how long um, how long the vaccines will last. And we won't know that until um, we've had been able to watch people who are vaccinated over a period of time. So that's something that we will be finding out over the next year or two.
0: Thank you. And um do you happen to know when it, when the vaccine is available will there be some kind of a an id card or document for folks to be able to uh, show proof of vaccine
3: yeah so this is one of the one of the things that i was referring to when i said um that there's just huge logistical challenges um we do not have a national system for a vaccine registry um in the state of Washington, we actually do have a state registry. And so making sure that sufficient information is, and that the people who are distributing it um, are recording that information into the the state vaccine registry will be critical, Um, but we don't currently have a system for that nationwide. And that is one of the things that that President-elect Biden's task force for COVID-19 is working on, I believe.
0: Okay, So that is a challenge.
3: That's one of our challenges.
0: And then a question about how safe the vaccine will be for uh, folks who are immunocompromised?
3: Uh, So my understanding is that we do not have safety data back yet on the vaccine, Um, the Pfizer vaccine, let alone any of the other ones. So it takes longer to get the safety data because you need a larger sample size. Um, and and to monitor them for a longer period of time than it does to get the initial efficacy data, uh, but we should be getting some of those data for um, the Pfizer vaccine in the coming month, I would hope, and, okay. and then for other vaccines as they finish up their clinical trials, their phase three trials.
0: And we had the question from Cindy, and you know, full full disclosure and disclaimer here. I know you can't provide medical advice uh, over the phone long distance, but um the question was about I'm folks also with not rheumatoid an MD. arthritis. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> I'm ah, a
3: PhD, yeah. not an MD. So, so there, there all, you go. all disclosure, yeah.
0: All caveats duly noted. But the, there was the question about the, the vaccine for people with rheumatoid arthritis uh, uh, who can't receive live virus. Any uh, information you can share on that one for us? Yeah,
3: so the Pfizer vaccine, uh, my understanding is that it is an RNA virus. Uh, sorry, an RNA vaccine, um, and that um, it is not um, a live virus. So it's not either live or dead virus. It's rather taking the genetic material um, and injecting that genetic material into people, and having their bodies produce um, just not the entire virus, but just the protein that I'll, that we develop the immune response to. All right.
0: Clearly, so something our it, from that our perspective column. should be okay. Thank you. And then um, antiviral medications?
3: Antiviral medications. So, um, some good news and some bad news. So, um, there, we had a number of different clinical trials that um, were um, fought, um, started very early on, both funded by the U.S. government and by um, private foundations like the Gates Foundation. Some of those have not looked promising. Um, so, um, for instance, the um, hydrochloroquine. Um, the, the, there have been several trials on that, and it does not um, have good look like it is an effective treatment. Um, however, we heard just again this past week about um, another um, uh, another um, drug that looks like it is more promising. Um, that I honestly don't know a huge amount about, but I think it was it, that it's um, an antibody based drug, so a, a, more a biotech um, as opposed to uh, um, as opposed to a chemical drug. Um, All right. That looks promising. So, I mean, we are starting to see some good things come out. And, and as um, Mr. Williams pointed out, this is part of why we are, it's not just new medications, we're also learning better how to treat people and handle them um, so that they have the best outcomes. And so that's part of why we're seeing um, a lower fatality rate than we were early on.
0: All right, thank you. Uh, At the risk of stating the obvious, a lot of questions still to be answered uh, on the subject of vaccines. And uh, we're gonna run just a couple of minutes long today because I do wanna uh, make sure we get to uh, three quick questions uh, that deal with uh, schools and kids and sports and um, uh, i'll go first to uh, jerry in palo alto if jerry is still with us apparently not but uh, wants to know what's your recommendation for schools for kids and sports Uh, and then uh, let's see if uh, cameron in los altos is still with us nope okay we're running a little long so that's understandable wants to know how does the change in tiers impact public and private schools And then uh, I believe the name is uh, Morteza in Sunnyvale. Let's see. I think uh, Morteza is still with us. Are you still with us, caller? All right. Apparently not. Uh, But still, the question was, why are schools reopening? Uh, And I uh, take that to mean given the rise in rates. Uh, Let me uh, go first to Mr. Williams to give us some Santa Clara County-specific understanding of what's happening with schools. Morteza, is that you?
2: Yes, please. Yeah, hi. uh, I am Dr. Ranemun and thank you for the opportunity. The speaker just uh, now clearly indicated
1: that the rate of positivity has increased compared to a month ago, and there is no indication for future improvement. Uh, I also uh, heard in the uh, discussion of Santa Clara Unified School District meeting that they are Planning to reopen the schools in January. I believe that this makes no sense. It is a pity to even talk about reopening schools at this time. No All right, Morton, let me
0: let me ask you to to hold your question right there, please, just because we're just about out of time, and I want to go to Mr. Williams and to Dr. Godwin to get their quick take on this. Uh, mr williams uh you, you heard the question a clear concern about yes. school reopening uh, given the uh, numbers we're seeing uh, others of course are calling to say we need to get uh, kids back into our schools uh and then we've got the questions about uh kids and sports if schools are going to reopen questions about how the tier change affects uh schools both public and private what can you share that would be helpful on this
1: subject sure and absolutely this is a really important topic and as the father of of four young kids and also the husband of of my wife who works in a school setting both the safety uh of children and staff in schools is something that i care a lot about but also the educational uh issues that um you know that that we're facing as a society with continued uh, school closures. Uh, and so it's a really, really important topic. Um, one thing that has been pretty clear uh, from, from for pretty early on in the pandemic, but has become clearer now over time, especially with a lot of school openings, and there's some great reporting on this um, in the New York Times and in many, many other places, is that uh, transmission from young kids, especially at the elementary level, um, appears to be much less significant. In other words, this virus does not appear to behave in quite the same way as the flu does, where schools are really an engine driving the spread of viruses like the flu. Schools don't appear, especially at the elementary level, don't appear to be the same kind of engine driving spread. And here locally, Uh, With some schools opening, um, we haven't seen um, a lot of spread being driven by schools. And we have, in fact, put in place very specific, very uh, uh, significant uh, guidelines on how schools can be open with um, all sorts of very, very detailed um, um, precautions that are mandatory. Uh, for how in-person instruction can occur in order to reduce that risk even further. Uh, And so it's been uh, a subject of a lot of focus locally. We have a whole schools task force. We have a lot of support infrastructure in place to help schools um, who are coming back do so uh, in a safer manner. Uh, And, you know, there's a lot of health risks and other harms that come from uh, schools being closed, and we're very cognizant of that uh, as well, and so have been looking at all that whole range. you know what does the increased case rates mean for in person instruction? Well, uh, under the state system, any schools that have already returned uh, for in person instruction can continue to operate even if we move into the purple tier the state's recommendations are to increase the frequency of testing but those schools do not need to close but schools that have not yet opened if we move into the purple tier um, would not be able to then open until we get back out of the purple tier unless it's an elementary school and there's a whole waiver process for elementary schools where we do an individualized Um, review of their safety protocols and their specific plans. Uh, There's a lot of information about uh, the guidance that schools must follow. It's available on our website. There's some great resources there. It's extraordinarily detailed guidance um, and uh, you know really driven towards you know how in-person instruction again especially at the elementary level can safely resume Um, and one of the things that we need to do as a community uh, is to take the actions necessary to try to bring the overall level of community transmission uh, under control in order to help promote and support an environment where school districts um, can then reopen schools those are district by district decisions but the county Public Health Department has put in place the infrastructure to support the safer reopening of of in-person instruction
0: thank you let me go to dr godwin for a a quick wrap up just not obviously on uh rules that apply here in california and santa clara county but just uh, dr godwin what's your take on schools reopening i have to say this is one of the biggest points of controversy in the community as i hear from the folks i represent
3: Yeah, in many ways, <clears throat> the dilemma about um, bringing kids back to school sort of encapsulates many of the the, the options that we have um, and decisions that we have to make in, under COVID um, in situations where we, we don't really have a good choice or an outstanding choice, um, and so we're trying to choose between two difficult situations, um, which I think Mr. Williams described really well, you know, the difficult situation of... Potentially, um, you know, seeing some increase in transmission when we're already at a point where we're worried about it versus the real um, learning um, and health disadvantages of having kids, particularly K through five kids, not be able to have in-person instruction. And so, I would just agree with him that um, we actually do know a fair amount now about how um, how to manage that in a not a completely safe, but a a safe, safe enough way for K through five kids. And that includes tracking to make sure, as you said, testing to make sure that um, we're not seeing outbreaks and being responsive and closing down schools when we, if we do have an outbreak. Um, but for me, you know, this is that, being able to have K through five kids spend some part of their week with in-person instruction, that for me, one of the top priorities, that and us keeping open, critical segments of our economy. So, for me, when, whenever I talk about, you know, like we ha- we're all gonna have to, you know, do some things that are not super fun or cut back on socialization and, and not, you know, have to wear masks even though it's a pain and keep our social distance, we're doing those things so that we as a society have the ability to do really essential functions, and for me, one of those really essential functions is making sure we're taking good care of our K-5 kids and giving them the opportunities to learn and grow and develop.
0: All right. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Hilary Godwin, uh, Dean of the School of Public Health at the University of Washington. Thank you, uh, James Williams, uh, County Council, and uh, one of our uh, rotating uh, heads of the Emergency Operations Center for Uh, 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 COVID-19. Really helpful commentary today. Thank you to all of you for listening. Uh, We had uh, tremendous participation. I got to more than 20 questions, but I have to tell you uh, that we had uh, well uh, more than 20 questions we just couldn't get to. A lot of great questions today, Uh, and um, uh, I was particularly disappointed because this is going to be the last telephone town hall for this year, for this calendar year, Uh, We'll assess uh, what uh, might be helpful in the coming year and with that in mind, I would just uh, in addition to saying thanks again uh, Remind listeners who are still on the call that uh, at the sound of the tone when we wrap up in a moment You can just stay on the line and offer a comment leave a message or a question if you'd like uh, And do let us know whether you think we should be continuing these in the new year are there particular topics? You'd like us to uh, cover particular folks you'd like to hear from Uh, And uh, if you, uh, for any reason, want to listen to part of the conversation that you missed or want to share it with a friend, it will be uh, up online uh, in its entirety in just a day or two uh, on my website, supervisorsummitian.com. And with that, I will say thanks, enjoy the holidays, uh, but enjoy them safely as we have been uh, advised by both uh, of our panelists today. It looks like we're in this for the long haul, and we're going to just have to redouble our efforts to get through it together as a community. So be safe, be well, and uh, do let us hear your thoughts at the sound of the tone. Uh, We'll talk to you uh, in the new year, but as always, feel free to reach out to me in my office, either by phone or by email,
1: uh, if we can be of help. Take care and be well. See you soon.